Good morning, Valley. It is great to see all of you here. You know, we have an amazing Good for All conference tonight, and I, I just want to tell you something. You know, one of our most popular, well-liked uh, speakers is our speaker this morning. So we are privileged and, uh, to have Ricky Jenkins with us. Ricky Jenkins uh, is married to April. They have three wonderful children. Uh, Ricky has become a really good friend over these years. And Ruth and I had the privilege of actually uh, worshiping with them uh, at their church uh, near Palm Springs, California, Southwest Church, one of the great churches in America. And, um, and we're privileged to have Ricky. He's not only, uh, you know, I respect him and I admire him. He's not only a, a great preacher, which you will soon see, but also he's just a good man and he's a good friend and he walks the walk uh, in, in real life. So can we give a very warm and boisterous Valley Church welcome to Ricky Jenkins. Come on, man. See you, man. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Good morning, Valley Church. How are you all doing this morning? It is good to see you. It is good to be seen. It's a blessing just to be here. I love coming to Valley Church. And the reason I love uh, coming here, there are, four, there are four reasons. The first is because of you, Valley Church, okay? The second three are for bar BQ, okay? <laughs> That's exciting to me as uh, I believe in pork. I think God loves pork, and we're going <laughs> to honor God this afternoon. <laughs> so um, as Quentin mentioned, I bring you greetings from Southwest Church, uh, Coachella Valley near Palm Springs, which is technically, we're a desert, and it's, it's just hilarious to me that our expected high temperature today is lower than you all's today. Uh, Jesus is coming soon, and I'll, that's all I have to say uh, to that. My wife sends her well wishes. Uh, she said, you know what, you're always coming to Des Moines without me, so I got to come out there. And so she sends her greetings. She's praying for us right now, along with our three children. Of course, I'm a, a chocolate um, man, and my wife is a vanilla woman. Our children are caramel, and they are all going to pray for Daddy and for Valley. We're excited about what you're doing tonight. I want to encourage and admonish all of you to be there as we lift up the uh, spreading of the gospel tonight. How many of you know that one of the most important places you can be tonight is at Good For All because of who we're all about, Jesus Christ. So I applaud this church uh, for being about the gospel and caring about Des Moines and caring about what God wants to do here. And I also applaud my dear friend, my brother, and he's right, um, you know, we've been doing this a while, and when you find a friend that you know is a man of character, not just on stage, but off, you, you, you hold on to that guy. And, and Quentin and Ruthie have been those folks for me. They represent our E-Free tribe that Southwest is also a part of. So you need to know that your pastor who loves you so well, loves dozens and dozens of other pastors around the country well, among whom I am in that number. He's gonna get me for this later, but would you encourage your senior pastor and give him a round of applause and thanking God for this man of God? with us today. We love you, Quentin. We love you, man. All right, we got to get to work. John 15, if you have your Bibles. I got a lot of fish to fry 
and I ain't got but a few minutes to cook it. So John 15, verses 1 through 11, if you're new to church, new to Christianity, John 15 is one of those banner passages that has meant a lot to the church throughout the millennia, and I pray that this message of reminder, if you will, will mean uh, a worthwhile blessing uh, to you. As you're turning there, uh, I just want to preach to you about what it means um, to, to remain uh, steadfast in your relationship with Jesus. This is not so much a come to Jesus message as much as it is a stay with Jesus message. Am I the only one who knows the goodness of Jesus but can have those chapters where I forgot? You ain't got to say amen out loud, but maybe you say amen like the Presbyterians. Huh, okay, whatever, <laughs> however you do that. But, but all of us uh, are kind of, I hate to use such a strong word, but a lot of us are, are kind of guilty of knowing how good Jesus is, but then kind of tiptoeing away from Jesus in those moments in our lives. And I want to talk about the invitation of Jesus to come, to come back home and, and to stay with him. And I hope that'll make sense here in a few minutes. I've learned in my little life uh, that when I'm in trouble, when I'm struggling, uh, when I'm in a crux, in those seasons, very rarely do I need to hear something new from God. When, when I'm in trouble, can I get a witness that what I really need to hear is to be reminded of something I forgot? Something that I knew to be true yesterday but lost my mind on today. Can I get a witness right there? Okay. I'm a black preacher from Mississippi. Your amens ain't going to throw me off <laughs> at all. Y'all cool? Okay. We're going to have a good time. So uh, let, let's go to John 15. We are, um, of course, 2,000 years ago. Um, we're etching towards what the Catholics would come to call Monday Thursday. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane where I know you stood and I've stood. And the Lord has just spent a few hours in prayer. So exacerbated by the pressure of what would happen on the cross that he is sweating profusely so much so that blood is secreting through his, his vessels there. And just probably a, a couple of hours after he says these words, the soldiers will be sent from the chief priest. They'll have clubs and they will pulverize his body with blows and they will take him away to undergo the most horrific moment in the history of the universe, the passion of the Christ. Uh, yet triumphantly, the preacher preaches these words of which you're about to hear and it seems to me that Jesus is way less worried about the death he's about to die and way more concerned about the life that he longs for you and I to live. And John has captured the episode for us and he writes to us these words here now, uh, the word of the Lord. John writes the words of Jesus. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now Jesus gives us the why of the sermon in verse 11, Valley. Would, Would you read it with me? These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Good morning, Valley. John 15, verses 1 through 11. I've read from the greatest book ever written, and I bear witness this day that all of its words are true. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, Back in the the 1980s, um, known to some in this room as as ancient history, uh, Coca-Cola, that great soft drink giant of a company, Uh, found themselves struggling in the soft drink industry. In fact, history tells us that Coca-Cola's market share had completely tumbled uh, from 60% in their early days all the way down to 24% by 1983. Coke was in deep, deep trouble, and to reverse that tumultuous trend, they decided that what they would do there in headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia, is build out a, a think tank and, and they would convene together, basically a room full of uh, geniuses. You know, they call themselves whiz kids, right? Advertising executives to be exact. They put these guys in a room for, for months on end to come up with some sort of innovative and new idea to help get Coca-Cola out of trouble. And so history tells us they spend those weeks on end And by April 1985, they had come up with a brand new idea to reverse the the, the issues that Coca-Cola was having. It was going to be a new flavor of their original soft drink that the geniuses called uh, New Coke. (laughs) By your giggles, some of you remember this New Coke. Uh, For those of you who remember this, um, New Coke was everywhere. Like, Coca-Cola spent millions of dollars on New Coke. There was New Coke paraphernalia that lined the shelves of every grocery store in the world. You couldn't drive anywhere without seeing New Coke signage strewn across every billboard in America and the world. We had a new invention in those days called cable TV and something called VHS cassettes that had New Coke commercials recorded where every other commercial was New Coke. Here New Coke, there New Coke, everywhere was a New Coke. And by April 1985, when they unleashed this idea upon the world, it really felt like New Coke was going to do nothing but succeed. There was only one problem. New Coke didn't taste good. (laughs) Like everybody hated New Coke. People couldn't stand New Coke. In fact, 77 days into New Coke's existence, when they finally decided to cancel the idea, Atlanta, Georgia headquarters had received 400,000 letters and phone calls full of customers' complaints as to how much they hated New Coke and begged them to bring back Old Coke. 
So Coca-Cola is running around the world. They're ripping off all the billboards and all the signs off the billboards. They're going to get all the VHS cassettes and they're throwing them into the fire. They're going to the supermarket and they're clearing all the shelves of new Coke. They repackage the original formula and they put that on the billboards and they put that on the VHS cassettes and they put that in the grocery stores. And to assure customers that the replacement drink was the old drink, they labeled it beneath the moniker Coca-Cola Classic. And the rest is history. Sales skyrocket. Endorsements increase. Coca-Cola returns to number one in the world, a position they continue to hold to this day, all because customers realize this most valuable lesson, that sometimes when the promises of those things are just new and improved when they fail to satisfy you, sometimes it's then and only then that you realize just how good the original really is. As we tiptoe towards our passage, Jesus Christ is saying to the disciples, I am the original. And regardless of the ways in which the so-called things of this world that are new and improved try to veer your attention away from me, Jesus says, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Valley Church, if you've heard nothing else, hear this and hear it over and over again in your spirit. Only Jesus satisfies. What I want to talk about is a reminder as to why Jesus is worthy of your commitment to stay here with him. I like to walk through one of the most famous passages ever in the history of the Bible. And so doing, I want to look at these three concepts, table of contents for our time. Jesus wants to remind us who he is, what he does, and how we should respond. I like to tag this text, stay here. Let's pray. Jesus, um, Father, find us where we are, whether we're here in the room, watching around the world online, enjoying, Lord God, this sermon in the lobby with our families. Holy Spirit, speak to every heart. God, just remind us of the sweetness of the gospel and the truth that only you satisfy and to stay here with you. Jesus, would you do a work now and build up this church as a result? For we ask it in Jesus' name and every heart said together, amen. amen. Y'all ready to have a few minutes of church? Okay, 14 of us? Okay, I'll take it. All right. Okay, we're going to do a little exercise. It's a little unconventional for some of you, but relax and get over yourselves. But this is just for us to get our hearts ready for what God has for us. I want you to do a little exercise. Uh, tap the person next to you on the shoulder and just repeat after me. Just, just go ahead. It's fine. Get over yourselves. You do this at games all the time. Okay, tap that person on the shoulder. This is a black church exercise. Don't be alarmed. Okay? Uh, look at that person and say, neighbor, Jesus wants you to stay here with him. Amen. Now, let's clap that in our spirit, okay? Y'all okay to talk a little bit today? Okay? It's okay to talk. Anyways, okay. As we jump to John 15, essentially what Jesus is doing, even if you just peruse the passage, is he's reminding his disciples just before his crucifixion of who he is. It is simple. Uh, This is not a Lamentations passage. This is not Romans 9. This is not Ezekiel or Zechariah. It's simple metaphors 
peppered throughout the passage where Jesus is giving these, these, these vibrant metaphors as to who uh, he is. Several times in the passage, Jesus says, I am the true vine, giving to us this vision of connectedness that Jesus longs to have with us, where our connection with Jesus is seen as inter uh, or dependent upon him. It's the idea that we are intrinsically tethered to our Father. It's a metaphor of proximation. That, that Jesus is divine, but we are so closely connected to him that we are his branches. Several times in the passage, Jesus says that I've come that you may bear fruit. I think that metaphor is mentioned some five times. Over and over again, Jesus says bear fruit and bear fruit and bear fruit. It's biblical speak. It's Jesus' way of saying, I love you so much that not only am I going to save you, but I'm going to do some things in your life to make your life count. Can I get a witness that Jesus died, but he didn't die for you to be average. And this is a metaphor of multiplication, this notion that I have come, not that you may have life, hallelujah, to the Lamb of God, but also that you might have life more abundantly. He just wants our life to count. He says, I am the true vine. He says, bear fruit. And then thirdly, several times in the passage, to my count, 10 times, Jesus says, abide in me, 10 times, abide in me, 10 times, abide in me, abide in me, suggesting, watch this now, that Jesus' vision of our relationship with him, watch this, is not one of visitation, but habitation. Well, I don't just show up with Jesus when I need him, but I stay with Jesus daily because apart from him, verse 5, I can do nothing. Now, most of you bibliologues, most of you theology nerds and church nerds are already thinking, yawn, bore, already knew that, read John 15 like a hundred times. Ricky, I really thought you were coming from out of town to give me a little bit more depth and nuance. First of all, get over yourself and relax, okay? <laughs> but, but secondly then, what then makes our passage unique? I want to suggest to you, Valley, that what makes John 15, 1 through 11 is not only what Jesus is saying, but perhaps even more so to whom it is being said. Stay with me now, because I think that what makes John 15 is not just the message, but also the audience to whom the message is being delivered. Because a closer study will show that Jesus here is preaching more than likely to the most faithful of his followers over the trajectory of that three-year ministry. You've got to know that Peter is there, and James is there, and John is there, and what my grandmama would refer to as Nathaniel is there, and all of the 12, plausibly the 500 who would be on the mountain when Jesus ascended into the sky are there. These are what I like to call all watch this now, Valley, the most lock and stock closest followers of Jesus Christ. These are not rookies. These are veterans. These are not first graders in the gospel. These are PhDs in the gospel. These are not newcomers. These are the most faithful, tried, and true. Give, Ricky, give me some more Bible. I'm glad you asked. John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The temperatures surrounding Jesus were at an all-time high. He knows that the chief priests are getting ready to betray him and crucify him. Yet, Jesus in John 11 turns his face towards Judea and Jerusalem. It is Thomas, one of the 12, who says, let us go with him that we may die with him. Also, translation, Thomas was saying, I ain't no punk. I am mature in my faith. I'm ready to die for Jesus if I have to. And I hope you get the idea now. What makes the message special is that Jesus is explaining who he is to people who should already know who he is. And there's the revelation.
And so often in our life, the most faithful of us have those moments where we forget that he is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he can do and that he can give peace that passes understanding and that the promises of love, joy, peace, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are promises that God delivers even in the worst of your storms. And Jesus here is showing us that the best of us can forget that only he can satisfy. So it's all these things Jesus is saying to remind people like us who tend to forget that he is who he says he is. How does he do it? Notice Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, we are West Des Moines dignified, educated folk, and we live in the modern era here in the year 2023, the year of our Lord. Some of us graduate degrees and, and postgraduate degrees, and so we simply scoff at this little metaphor, and we give the golf clap, and we say, oh, what a beautiful metaphor. But what you need to understand is 2,000 years ago, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, you need to know among the Jews, it would have been some furniture moving. Because you didn't, it's African-American colloquialism that none of you could possibly get. But anyways, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, you need to know you didn't talk like Jesus is talking. This was a no, no. You didn't say, I am the true vine. You never even uttered those words as a faithful Jew because it's quite possible that as soon as Jesus says, I am the true vine, the Jews' hearts would have hearkened back to Exodus chapter 3. And they would have imagined there when the bush is burning but not burning away and the voice of Yahweh commissioning a man named Charlton, I mean a man named Moses, saying, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And a weak need and uh, a tongue stuttering, nervous Moses, his knees are buckling at the thought of having to go present the eternal one of the universe. Hallelujah. And it is Moses that says, you've got to give me some credibility. So give me the name so I can tell your name, so I can tell your name to give me an open door to Pharaoh and I can see what might have been the first pause in all eternity in the heavenlies as God looks down upon Yahweh and says, you want me to give you human finite language to explain someone who is infinite. You want to give me a name that can help you package someone who cannot be packaged. You want me to give you a name to help put someone in a house who cannot possibly fit in a house, but I understand understand, Moses, you got to give them something. Go down the hill and tell them that I am, that I am. And 1,400 years later, when the Son of God comes and he says, I am, Jesus is tiptoeing into encoded Old Testament phraseology. It's Jesus' way of saying, don't dumb me down to some 33-year-old podunk carpenter from Nazareth, but maybe, just maybe, I am the same God who parted the sea, and I am the same God who flung the stars into glory, and I'm the same God who is the God who is the only one who can make your life make sense and the trouble you found yourself in. When Jesus said, I'm the true vine, Jesus said, I'm God, girl. I'm God, man. And the only way your life's going to work is when you retether your life to me. You didn't talk like this. 
When Jesus says, I'm the true vine, the Jewish DJ on the ones and twos would have stopped spinning right there. When Jesus says, I'm the true vine, I'm telling y'all, the Jewish homegirls on the block would have put their hands on their hips. They would have started snapping and saying, oh, no, you didn't talk like that because you didn't say this. So, Jesus is emphatically reminding his disciples, I'm God. Why? Because you're about to see me die, and you're going to forget for three days that I am who I says I am. Anyone else had a chapter of three days where they forgot that he is who he says he is? So he says, I am the true vine. Now, closer study will show that this is the seventh of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. So at other opportune moments, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I am the door and I am the resurrection and the life. That phraseology, I am, is the Greek phrase, ego, I, me. Now, in English, I am just means I am. But Greek is more technical. Whereas I am means I am, ego, I, me means I, myself, am. So when we run it back through the gamut, it's not Jesus saying, I am the good, the good shepherd. It's Jesus saying, I myself am the good shepherd. He's not saying, I am the way, the truth, and life. He's saying, I myself am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not saying, I am the way, uh, the resurrection, and the life. He's saying, I myself. I don't know if the Holy Spirit had that high pitch. But anyways, <laughs> I myself am the way, the truth, and the life. And in our text, I am the true vine. What Jesus is saying is, I myself am the true vine. The English brings the point, but the Greek has the attitude. It is Jesus saying, when you put your faith in me, and when my spirit generated you, and when my blood washed your sins away, and I made my habitation the inside of your heart, that is now more than enough for your joy, contentment, fulfillment, and peace. And it's so thick and rich and sure that no matter what happens and befalls you in your life, there's enough joy in the empty tomb that will span all eternity by himself. He is enough for you. Where's the lesson? Here it is. It's not a Jesus plus gospel. It's a Jesus gospel. See, Scripture teaches us that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Can I go further? We are made content by grace through faith in Christ alone. We are given peace by grace through faith in Christ alone. But what happens is something changes, even though we know that here, between that 18-inch journey from our head to our heart where we remix the gospel, and instead of it being based on Jesus alone, it becomes Jesus plus my children to stop getting on my nerves. Jesus plus to get that promotion. Jesus plus to earn this much money. Jesus plus that girl to love me. Jesus plus these people to see me as somebody that's impressive. Jesus plus my body to be healed. Jesus plus not to have another divorce. Jesus plus my particular candidate to win. And I've come to tell you that what Jesus is saying is regardless of what befalls you in your life, his promise of the gospel is this, by himself, he's enough for you. Some of us, like myself, have committed the sin of remixing the gospel from Jesus only to Jesus plus. And I don't know who or what is in the blank, but nine times out of ten, if you have a Jesus plus blank gospel, whatever's in the blank is your functional savior.
And here's the problem with whatever's in the blank. It ain't never going to work. Uh, we used to go to China a lot to train in the underground church. And so me and my wife have been to China a few times and we go underground and we go to this hideout and then we get on the 20-hour train and we go, go to that hideout. And then we go to this train, we go to another tw- you know, train and we go to hideouts. And I've almost gotten arrested by the communists like twice. It's awesome, okay? And you're just over there and you're teaching Bible to pastors who are way more courageous than you and I. And you're usually about three weeks and at the end of a missions trip, the Chinese pastors always take us to a flea market because they love us Americans. They know we love our shopping. And you go into this grandiose uh, flea market that's as big as an Ikea, right? And here's the thing about Chinese flea markets. They're all knockoffs, okay? They're purportedly full of nothing but knockoffs. So ladies, uh, there's, there's no Louis Vuittons. It's Bowie Vuitton, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> It ain't no North Face jacket. It's like a South leg, right? It's not, it's, it ain't no Air Jordans. It's Air Schmordens, okay? It's, 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 it's that kind of thing. I didn't care. I got all the knockoffs I could possibly afford. Now, I have a confession to make, and my confession is this. Don't judge me. My confession is that I love watches. I love watches. Watches. If y'all were to sneak into my closet, you would find a mahogany case with all the little compartments with all 39, I mean all four of, of my, I love watches. So I'm in the flea market and I ain't going to stop. I ain't going to rest until I see the watch booth. So I'm looking off of every aisle and I'm trying to find the watches. Then I turn the corner and there they were. Have you ever heard the choirs from heaven sing? I found the watches and the Gregorian chants began. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I started running in slow motion towards the watches, and you can hear the soundtrack from Chariots of Fire in the background. Dun, 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 dun. And y'all, I got the watches, and there were Novatos, and there were Lucci watches, and there were no Lexus, and I just went and grabbed them all up. I'm in a safe place. I'm in church. I can confess my sins and still be loved. Y'all, I bought five watches. I bought five. Don't you judge me. It was like $8 for all five. Don't you judge me. Don't judge me. So I get back and I got all these flashy watches. And to be honest, it went to my head. I got a little arrogant because I had an Omega and a tag or a lag. But anyways, I had all these watches and you just can't tell me nothing. So I'm kind of walking a little different, you know what I'm saying? And I got a little strut and my step and I'm kind of flashing a little bit more. And I'm getting compliments on my fake watches. Like dudes are like, bro, dude, bro, dude, nice watch. I'm like, dude, bro, dude, bro, thank you, you know? Another guy says, Ricky, that's a timepiece right there. Where'd you get that? And my arrogant self, I would say, <laughs> overseas, okay? <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just cocky with my watches. One problem with my watches, they couldn't tell time. <laughs> Not one of them could tell time. I replaced the battery. Battery popped right out. All the glasses would crack in the middle of the night. All five alarms would go off. This is the last watch that made the ordeal a minute ago. I said, what time is it? It looked back at me and said, Ricky, for the last time, I don't know. Because <laughs> it's a fake watch. And a fake watch will never work. What's the fake watch? that's grafted itself to your heart, 
that maybe makes you feel big and makes you feel special. But when you need it to show up, it's not showing up. Fake watches never satisfy. Only Jesus does. Amen? Amen. So what does Jesus do to kind of to kind of secure this reality. Because can I get a witness that when you're in that kind of season where you're tiptoeing with fake watches and, and new Cokes, can I get a witness that if Christ don't come get you, you'll probably stay there? Come on, somebody. So, so what does Jesus do to wake us up and remind us of the good news that by himself he is enough? Well, the text says that he prunes us that we might bear more so here comes the ouchy part of the sermon. The text apparently is teaching that the way Jesus loves you back home is to prune you out of fake watches. Oh, my goodness. Let's have some church up in here, up in here. You'll be fine. The first service was quiet on this part, too. <laughs> the text says he secures us by pruning us that we may bear more fruit. Um, Bearing fruit is a beautiful metaphor, it's Bible speak, but essentially means Jesus does something in your life to ensure the fact that when it's all said and done, your life counted. In a world that says make all the money you can, be as famous as you can, have as many Instagram followers as you can, get as viral as you can, Jesus says, I've come to give you something that'll be worthwhile for eternity if you walk with me. Because how many of you know that in heaven, won't anyone care how many followers you had? And won't anyone care how many promotions you had? But how did you make your life worthwhile for his fame and his glory in the earth? He says, I'll do something to make sure your life count. Bearing fruit means things like you actually taking the content from tonight and using it with your kids and using it with your spouse and using it with your neighbors and using it with your colleagues. Bearing fruit means like being in a conversation at church and one of your brothers or sisters says, I'm really struggling. Can you pray for me? And you actually remember to pray for them every day until God delivers them. Bearing fruit is things like having a mission strip opportunity and thinking maybe that's for you because it is for you and you doing what it takes to see what God is doing in another part of the world. Bearing fruit is things like serving at your church and serving when there's need and finding the hurting people and giving them face and humanizing people that are struggling around you. Bearing fruit is things like understanding that you may never get rich and you may never get uh, famous, but who cares as long as your life was worthwhile and meaningful. Bearing fruit is what happens every night when I go into their room and I lay my big fat hands on those big headed Jenkins children and I pray Quentin and I usually tear up as I pray for their salvation to the fourth generation and I pray over Camden Earl and I say Lord save Camden and save Camden's son and save Camden's son's son and save Camden's son's son's son bearing fruit means Ricky Jenkins you may never be somebody you may never have a big name you may never be rich but the promise of the gospel is that when I die when I close my eyes for the last time I run into the gates of heaven and in my imagination Jesus will run towards me he will pick up all 260 pounds he will bounce me like I bounce my little girl. There will be tears streaming down both our faces. He will kiss me over and over again and again on my cheek and he will say, well done, Ricky. You didn't get rich. You didn't get famous, but your life counted. That's bearing fruit. (laughs) 
And how does the Lord make sure that's going to happen? He prunes us. He prunes us. Can I go further? Can I be deep with the 930? It literally means on some level, he will allow you to be hurt so that on a great level, you will be eternally helped. See, the idea of pruning, watch this, was being cleansed through losing something. One of the greatest ways Jesus gets your attention, watch this, is to take away something you think is a really good idea and force you to remember what is the only worthwhile idea. Anybody ever been pruned before, by the way? That's what he, he takes something away. See, a good farmer would have so understood his crops that he would investigate, and if there's anything that was wilting, anything that was dying, anything that was browning, anything that was out of order, he would get something sharp and cut it out because a farmer understood that if I take out what's bad, I make room for what's good. I used to live in Oakland, California, close to the Napa Valley wine country, and I remember going on a tour in the wine country, and I'm there with my friends. We're going up and down the aisles of, of harvest there for, for research purposes, of course. And, and we're going up and down, and the winemaker gets this big bundle of grapes of juicy fruit there. And he's like, Ricky, do you see that fruit? I was like, yeah, it's delicious. Got to have a couple. And he lifts up the plump, juicy grapes to dispose that on the same plant there are these raisins and shriveled up, prunish-looking, puny grapes that were just dying and withered. He says, Ricky, do you see those? I said, man, I had no idea two different kinds of fruit can be on the same plant. He says, Ricky, my job is to take my knife and cut away this fruit that doesn't have a chance. What I've learned, Ricky, is that all the energy my plant was wasting on bad fruit can now be devoted to all the fruit that actually has some potential. The idea is that Jesus is the great winemaker, and in your life, he often cuts away the things that don't have a chance so you can devote your energy to fruit that does have a chance. Can somebody say amen? amen. And even though that hurts, Jesus says eternally it will help. And for those of you who are being pruned in this season, Jesus says these words to you. If you're in a season where I'm pruning you, it just means I'm loving you. Hold on. Because I'm telling you, folks, there's going to be this moment in heaven where Jesus plays back the Netflix stream of our lives. And what we're crying about now and the judgment when we meet him, we'll be thanking him that he did what he did. Amen? Who he is, what he does, uh, how then should we respond? So what, what, what ought we to do? How are we to apply this in our lives? Well, it's, it's obvious, right? Like 10 times. Everybody say 10 times. Like 10, 10 times, I want you to pay attention to that. 10 times, say 10 times, one more time, 10 times. 10 times, okay, big 10, 10 times. This is, this is, are y'all still the big 10 or is like the big 18? I don't know what it is. Anyway, 10 times Jesus says, abide in me. Abide in me, abide in me. Disciples, they're about to take me out of Gethsemane, abide in me. They're about to put me on a cross, abide in me. There'll be dark moments where you will forget this, so abide in me. There'll be weird moments, 40-day wait is coming after this, where you're going to just, I'm going to be popping in and out of thin and air just to teach you what I want you to do. Abide in me. 
40 days or 50 days from now, I'm going to ascend and I'm going to be out of here, but my spirit will be, but abide in me. Translation, no matter what happens, your response to God's gospel is to abide in him. It's the Greek word meno, from which we derive our English word remain. This is why we call the sermon, stay here, because 10 times Jesus says, stay here. Stay here. Can I go further? Trust me. Stay here. Stay here with me. Ten times he said it, which means that the lesson is this. this. The issue for us in the gospel is not that we don't know where satisfaction is. The issue is that we struggle to stay there. Amen, somebody? Let's kind of call it what it is. We'll be out there in the world doing our thing, you know? You got that? Maybe it's an um, unequally yoked relationship. Maybe it's an unfair business practice. Maybe it's a vice like addiction or pornography or whatever that stuff out there. And at first, how many of you know that sin's good? Because if it wasn't good, we wouldn't do it. And so we're just out there and we're just doing our thing out there in the world. But how many of you know that that fun has a time limit and it destroys us? And nine times out of ten, most of us say, oh, this is not for me. And we wait, wait a minute, Jesus is rest. Jesus is satisfaction. So we run back home to Jesus and we catch our breath and we say, that's right, he is good. He is the true vine. I can bear fruit if I abide in him. But how many of us like me are guilty of coming back to Jesus to get our rest back up to run right back to what was making us sick and tired? What the Lord says is, this time, don't just come to visit me. Come to make a commitment that I'll help you keep to stay with me. Recognizing that the only place for you is with me. Ten times he says that. And you know why I think Jesus said it ten times? It's to make sure you don't let guilt and shame to stop you from accepting his invitation. Ten times. I was just like, Jesus, why do you say it ten times? Like, Peter, did he have a hearing aid? Like, what's wrong? Ten times. Ten, what, what is going on with these disciples that you have to say it ten times? And I really do believe when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, I was willing to say it ten times because I knew your heart is prone to forget ten times. So as many times as you forget is as many times as I said it to let you know that if I'm not going to let your past stop you from coming to me, don't you let your past stop you from coming to me. So ten times, graciously, Jesus says, abide in me. Come back home to me. Stay with me. Don't let guilt and shame stop you from accepting Jesus' invitation. Valley Church, if Jesus says something one time, listen to it. If Jesus says something two times, underline it. If Jesus says something three times, memorize it. If Jesus says something ten times, you need to tear the page out your Bible and paste it to your forehead. <laughs> because it's Jesus' way of saying, if I'm not going to let your guilt and shame stop me from loving you, don't you let your guilt and shame stop you from loving me. I worked for a dad who uh, was a phone company service tech, and so my dad was a hero because he climbed poles for a living. Steel toe boots, Wrangler jeans, flannel shirt every day, work doubles, usually didn't go up to 8.30, 9 o'clock so mama could be home and raise us kids. And he's a hero because of that. And we had two rules in the house when daddy came home. 
Uh, the first rule is don't eat the big piece of chicken. <laughs> and the second rule was nobody sits in daddy's chair. Because he'd be, he'd be so exhausted, like he'd just come home, and man, I'm just telling you, he just had to plop out. And he was so exhausted, the message to us little kids was, don't mess with daddy. Daddy can't be bothered. Daddy's day was too big, it was too stressful. Daddy's role is too important, doesn't have time for us. But we loved dad, dad was hero. And so we'd always be just in the hallway, because we'd sneak out of bed, because we wanted to go kiss him and love on him. But hey, you can't sit in daddy's chair. But it never failed. The old man would sit down and he just got a deep breath for like five minutes and it never failed. He'd take off his shoes because he knew we were there. And I'm from Pearl, Mississippi, so we, we're country where I come from. And the old man would say, children, y'all come in here and sit on your daddy's lap. And we would run and we would jump on him and we would bear hug him and wrestle him and he would kiss us and love on us. And the message was this, I'm never so busy that I don't have time for you. For those of you for whom guilt and shame is tempting you to believe that you've done too much to come back home. The voice of Christ. Children, come on in here and sit on your daddy's lap. As long as there's breath in your body, there's grace for your soul to come back home. So Father, I thank you for your word and the truth and I praise you that Lord God, the invitation is to stay here and come on back home. So Jesus, I just pray that wherever we're at, God, we just do that business with you, that we remind ourselves that even in this, Lord God, you are enough for us. God, that if we're in a painful season where it seems like you're redirecting our steps and pruning some things away, give us gumption to trust that your way is best even if we can't see our way clear, you know the destination for us and give us the power of faith to trust in you. And Father, I pray that as we accept this good news of the gospel into our hearts, that you would anoint us to bear fruit all our days and make our lives count. Help us to stay here. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.